News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, this next segment is going to be a bit challenging for me this morning because at heart, I am not a math person. I wish desperately that I could be, but... It is just not meant to be, and I've spent a lifetime trying. However, we are talking about explaining human nature and human behavior, which I love talking about, by using quantum physics. So for that, I am going to give this a try. And I know our next guest is going to do a great job of explaining it to me. It's Dr. Georgie Brody, who's a professor of mathematics at the University of Surrey. Dr. Brody, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. How do we explain human behavior by using quantum physics? Okay, so let's think about a quantum computer. Uh, Most people would have heard of quantum computer. And if you uh, read a popular account of a quantum computer, it begins by explaining that whereas the classical computers that we work uh, operate on binary uh, digits, zeros and ones, in a quantum computer, what you have is a quantum bit, which uh, can be zero and one at the same time. And it's almost like you can take any value in between zero and one, and that extra room allows you to process information faster than the classical classical computer. Now, of course, at the end of the day, you have to uh, extract information out of your computer, and that's where you have to make a measurement, so to speak, to decide whether your quantum bit is in zero or one, and at that point, uh, your quantum bit will collapse into either zero and one, and we can interpret the, the result. With that in mind, let's think about a situation where you walk into a nice restaurant, let's say, and you're given a menu, and there are several items on the menu that look hugely attractive, and you really can't make up your mind. And the state of your mind at that moment isn't like a classical probability where it is either this or that, but you're not sure. It is not the case that your brain has already decided and you're trying to figure out which choice your brain has made. Rather, your mind is in an indecisive state, just like a quantum bit uh, where uh, your state is somewhere in between those two choices. But at the end of the day, of course, uh, a waiter or waitress comes and takes the order And at that moment, uh, your state will collapse, so to speak, to one or the other uh, of the choice. So that's one feature of uh, quantum mechanics, which uh, seems to be geared towards explaining our cognitive behavior. Okay, I'm trying to wrap my head around this, Mm. Dr. Brody. So are you saying that we're talking about predicting human behavior or trying to assess human behavior Using an algorithm, like putting all of the factors that may influence me at the moment that I am deciding what I might have for that dish, like how I feel that day, what I felt like having, and then using that as kind of almost like a mathematical equation? Uh, In some sense, yes. Uh, But the idea is that the state of our our mind uh, operates just like the way quantum system operates in terms of probabilities. And the point is that if I were to toss a coin and uh, don't show you the outcome, then you think it's either head or tail, and you already know it's either head or tail. You just don't know which one, but you know it's already there. Whereas in a restaurant situation, in our mind, 
uh, it's not like the decision has already been made. This, the decision hasn't been made. And that state uh, can be described by using the mathematics of quantum mechanics. So do we already do this in a way, or is this a new way of looking at it? Uh, this is a fairly new way of understanding human cognition. And it's an idea which has been developed by many scientists over the last 15 or 20 years. So what do you do with this now? Where do you take it? Well, one possible direction is in, into AI. Uh, if you were to, uh, if you wish to create an AI which uh, operates in a way which is uh, more similar to the way we behave, and of course you, you can ask the question whether that's what you want or not, but if you do, then to have an architecture for an AI, you need to implement quantum mechanical probability rules and not the classical one, because the way we think do not follow the rules of a classical probability system. Okay. So that would be one application. Okay. And then there are other applications in biology too, uh, because it's not just the humans, but many other biological systems uh, can also process information uh, more efficiently than what is uh, suggested by uh, the classical probability system. And that will lead to energy saving and all kinds of other uh, usefulness. Dr. Brody, what's so interesting is that we often think that with hu human behavior is so unpredictable. Is it unpredictable? Mm. Or can we say, no, we can, we can understand it better than that? Well, uh, I would say we can understand the statistics better. So you can't predict any particular case, but we can now predict the statistics of situations better than before. Okay, so then how do you see this developing then? Where will this become useful down the line? <laughs> Interesting. Good question. Uh, let me think. So as I said, uh, potentially we are now in a position to start thinking about uh, how one might uh, construct an AI system using quantum rules. So that's one uh, possible application. And another application would be to try to understand better the efficiencies of biological systems, in particular in view of the way in which the climate is changing, uh, if we can better understand how efficient, for example, a green plant can be, then that would uh, potentially help uh, the future of the society. Right, so interesting. Dr. Brody, thank you for explaining that to me this morning. Thank you. I appreciate that. Dr. Dorji Brody is a professor of mathematics at the University of Surrey. Now, I said it, I am math challenged. So I appreciate the way he was able to break that down and explain the idea of human behavior using quantum physics. And it's a new area, as you can tell. They are still developing it. And I'm still, I'm going to have to think about that one. I'm going to wrap my head around that one. This is Mornings with Simi. Talk some entertainment news this morning because there is big news in the movie world. It's the morning of the Academy Award nominations. They are already out. So you need to know what should you watch? What should you invest your time with? Aha, that's what Scott and I are going to talk about this morning. Hi, Scott. Hi. Yeah, I love Oscar season and I make it a goal of mine every year to see all of the movies that are nominated for Best Picture. All of them? Yeah, that way I can, I mean, I love movies and uh, this has been harder since having kids, but I always like to go in knowing that it's like, oh, this movie that no one's really heard 
heard about, but it's nominated to say, to be able to say I've seen that and I know, you know, if I say, oh, I think this is going to win because we do the Oscar ballot, you know, with right. a group of friends right. and I want to be educated when I'm filling out my Oscar ballot. So uh, a lot of the things that you expected to be uh, on these lists is there. Oppenheimer leading the nominations with 13, including, of course, Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, uh, Best Supporting Actress. It's going to win everything. I also love, like, I'm glad. I, I really enjoyed Oppenheimer. A little, yeah. little bit on the long side, but I was like, you know, could have been shorter, but still enjoyed that movie. Okay. Now, I enjoyed Barbie, and I know Barbie is huge. My, to me, my feeling was like, oh, yeah, that was, that was an entertaining movie, but to, uh, the thing that amused me the most in Barbie was Ryan Gosling. And it's nice to see that that's exactly, I think, how the Academy felt about it, too. Yeah, so he got a nod for Best Supporting Actor. And, it's, it's like, the Academy obviously recognizes the achievement here. Barbie is nominated for Best Picture. I think we all kind of know that they're not going to give it Best Picture because, like you say, it's entertaining and the Oscars doesn't typically It didn't get a director nomination for Greta way. Gerwig and it yeah. didn't get a Best Actress nomination for Margot Robbie. Yeah, but the fact that it's there is kind of the Academy giving it this nod of, it's right. a great movie, it deserves to be in the conversation. Made a lot of um, money. Here. Yeah, yeah. There's some other things that are that are nominated for Best Picture. Like Maybe we'll run those down to start yes. there. American Fiction. I really want to see I this. I really want to see it. Love it looks Jeffrey fantastic. Wright, yeah, and he's and, in that. And he's nominated for Best Actor Love as well. It for it. Okay. Anatomy of a Fall, which you and I have been talking about quite a bit. I've seen it and I really enjoyed it. Yeah. And is it subtitled? I think that's one of the things a lot of people are asking about it. It's not 100% French. It's There's a, quite a bit of English in it. Okay. Um, and yeah, so it's got subtitles, but it's also not completely French. Okay. Interesting. There's, there is a lot of English in it. It's, um, it's a serious thinking movie uh, that is a lot of dialogue, but I like those kinds of movies, right. so I enjoyed it. Yeah, I feel that way, and that's part of one of the reasons I loved Oppenheimer. Uh, Barbie is on the list. The Holdovers, I really which looks see that. fantastic. Paul Giamatti, it looks kind of... Um, which is sort of refreshing for a Best Picture nom. It's like a, almost like a feel-good retro. movie. It's yeah, like a retro, retro feel-good, yeah. fun. Uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, which we've talked about. Maestro, the Bradley Cooper movie. That's um, on Netflix. You can it, watch yep. that for free anytime. Yeah, exactly. Oppenheimer, like we talked about, Past Lives. I'm super excited for that. Yeah. Poor Things, which has gotten a lot of hype for Emma Stone. Yeah. She's in that. And then The Zone of Interest, which I hadn't heard about, but I just looked it up. Have you heard of this? I have heard of it, but now I'm going to look it up even more because of this nomination. Yeah. So it's based on a book and it takes place um, around Auschwitz. So that's oh, that'll be okay, the tease. Then that's exactly the movie I, that I'm thinking of. Okay. It's about Rudolf Hess and his family living yes. outside of Auschwitz. Okay. Yes, exactly. Uh, and apparently it's fantastic. Best Actress, Annette Bening for Nyad which also looks amazing. Do you know about Nyad? I've heard about that because Jodie Foster is in Correct. This. Yeah. And she's yeah, yeah. nominated. First time in 29 years. Uh, is she nominated for Best Supporting Actress? Yes. Yeah, that's right. Um, so that looks great. Uh, Lily Gladstone for Killers of the Flower Moon, which I is hope she awesome wins. to see. Yeah. Yep. Uh, Sandra Huller for Anatomy of a Fall. Carrie Mulligan for Maestro and Emma Stone for Poor Things. Uh, Best Actor, Bradley Cooper for Maestro. Coleman Domingo for Rustin, Paul Giamatti for The Holdovers, Cillian Killian Murphy for Oppenheimer and Jeffrey Wright for American Fiction. Okay. Uh, supporting actress, Emily Blunt, Oppenheimer, Danielle Brooks for The Color Purple, America Ferreira for Barbie, uh, Jodie Foster for Nyad, like we were talking about, and Devine Joy Randolph for The Holdovers, and then Best Supporting Actor, and we'll do director too, but Best Supporting Actor, Sterling K. Brown for American Love Fiction. Him. Yes, from um, This Is Us. This Is Us. He's a fantastic actor, so it's 
cool to see him get there. Robert De Niro, Killers of the Flower Moon. Robert Downey Jr., who killed in Oppenheimer. Ryan Gosling for Barbie, which we love, and Mark Ruffalo for Poor Things. And then Best Director, Justine Triette for Anatomy of a Fall. Martin Scorsese, Killers of the Flower Moon. Christopher Nolan for Oppenheimer. Yargos Lanthimos for Poor Things. And Jonathan Glazer for The Zone of Interest. So those that kind of gives you an idea of what the big sort of Oscar buzzy movies are. Have you seen the movie or read the book, The Boy in the Striped Pajamas? No. What is that? It reminds me, it's very similar to The Zone of Interest, the idea of it. Okay. And so anybody out there who has seen it or read the book knows what I'm talking about when I say it wrecked me. Okay. So I don't know if I can watch The Zone of Interest because I'm still thinking of The Boy in the Striped Pajamas, which wrecked me. Yeah, I watched the trailer for The Zone of Interest and I was just like, oh, this is going to be one of those movies. Important, but hard to watch. I'm going to watch it one time and then probably never want to watch it again. Right. Um, But yeah, Oppenheimer, I think, is probably the favorite to win a lot of things. People are talking about how Christopher Nolan is a shoe-in to win the director category. Um, Probably over... Martin Scorsese for Killers of the Flower Moon, like <laughs> we've talked about. always some surprises. And I think the reason why this year seems to be a bigger deal when it comes to award ceremonies is like there were there were some not great movies made during the pandemic that didn't get people excited about going right. to see the movies. Felt like Hollywood was in a time of transition. But this past year, I think, was different. And yeah, okay, Barbenheimer had something to do with that, right? People, it was new, it was original. People wanted to go see these movies. So people are a little more excited this year about yeah. it. Yeah, and I think that they've done a good job job of um, capturing things in cinema that everyone has seen and everyone is talking about and sort of the artsy, fun, um, you know, indie movies that really are fantastic, like Zone of Interest and Poor Things. But then everyone has seen Barbie, right? It made a bajillion dollars. So it's great to see that on the list as well. And people should should see Oppenheimer if you haven't seen it yet. so good. It's a a great movie. They could cut a little bit out of it, cut half an hour, even an hour out of it. it Really? An hour? I would say at least half an hour. I think you could cut half an hour out of it. I don't know. I loved every minute. Okay, there you go. Uh, That's Scott Chats. Today's Academy Award nominations day. You can check it out. Let us know what you think. Send me at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. All right, it's time for us to check in with Vaughn Palmer from the Vancouver Sun. And boy, some interesting developments in the last 24 hours. Good morning, Vaughn. And good morning, Simi. Let's talk about Ellis Ross. I mean, this was really interesting. Yeah, so Ellis Ross, BC United member uh, for Skeena, is switching to federal politics. So he's going to stay as an MLA until the BC election. But he's joining the Pierre Polyev team, and he's going to run. It's an NDP riding up there, so he's not like he's hasn't got a slam dunk here. But that's one of the really interesting things that's going on in BC is Polyev is going around scooping up BC United MLAs, and in a couple of cases, he's uh, putting them into the field against New Democrats. So uh, the situation is fluid federally. Uh, what's the... <laughs> I have to say, the BC United reaction to all this. I've seen some silly press releases in my day, but the one that BC United put out may end up being one of the dumbest of the year if things unfold as they might. Uh, BC United is trying to make the best of this news. So they put out a press release saying Ellis Ross is switching to federal politics to serve the interests of his constituents and British Columbians, and he endorses Kevin Falcon. He just thinks Kevin Falcon is the only guy to vote for if you want to beat the NDP. 
I mean, Simi. Okay, sure. <laughs> sure, okay. sure. He likes Look, him so much he's, that he's leaving he's so, to run against somebody else in another writing. He likes him so much he's leaving for Ottawa, right? I mean, that's the real message here. And look, you, you look at the calculations, and of course, in an election year, members are deciding whether or not to run again. And if you see a member who's an MLA right now, and they say, I'm not running again in BC, but I'm going to run in the next federal election in the same area, you have to think they're sitting down going, you know what, in the next two elections, I got a better chance of ending up in government in Ottawa than I do in Victoria. I mean, MLAs pay a lot more attention to the opinion polls and the writings than I do. So uh, Ross is a real catch for Polyev. Uh, and Polly have made a point of being here to celebrate with him. Uh, Ross is very independent-minded, uh, former Indigenous chief in the region, great defender of LNG, very outspoken, a loss to Falcon and the BC United team here in BC and a big gain for Polyev. And I think there's more to come on this. So we've all way. heard the rumors. Yeah. Mike DeYoung veteran MLA, uh, Fraser Valley riding out there in Abbotsford. Rumor mill says he's getting ready to switch to the federal arena as well. It, he hasn't said that yet, but a decision expected soon, and the betting line is switched to federal. And a third BC United MLA, this one hasn't gotten a lot of attention, but he's out there too. So three-term MLA, BC Liberal, now BC United, Dan Ashton, <clears throat> he's looking at a federal conservative riding in the southern interior of the province. Again, an NDP-held riding. Uh, he told his local uh, news media he's not running again provincially. Uh, he's not ruling out a federal bid, and I gather he's out organizing to get the nomination there. So Ashton, again, uh, he's been there for a while with BC United. Uh, he says he's conservative. He says he's looking federal, and that would be three. So only one confirmed, two other possibilities. You put it all together and you go, gee, a bunch of BC United MLAs seem to be betting their chances are better at getting elected next time with Pierre Polyev than they are getting elected or forming government with Kevin Falk. Now, if you're Pierre Polyev, do you say, yes, come on board? Or do you think, well, wait a minute, is this, is this candidate by candidate, do you think? Um, I think you go candidate by candidate, and if there's going to be a local nominating meeting, as there will be in the southern interior, you leave it to see if Ashton can organize and, and get it. But Ross has already got the nomination uh, for the Conservatives there. He is going to be their candidate. So, no, I mean, I think Polyev is looking at uh, British Columbia as very good recruiting grounds for his party. And you can see that he's not just targeting liberal MPs out here. He's saying, hey, I think we got a shot at taking some seats from the NDP. So that's major. Now, federal elections a long way off and stuff can change. Kevin Falcon will tell you polls can change too. But um, no, I think I think Polyev is, uh, sees British Columbia as one of the keys to forming a majority conservative government. And he thinks he can pick seats up here. And look, somebody like Ellis Ross is going, if Pierre Polyev ends up as prime minister and I win, there's two ifs, then 
Ross figures probably he's got a good shot at ending up in cabinet too, although there are some incumbent conservative MPs who would say, well, you won't be on the short list ahead right. of me. So we'll see. We will see. But that <laughs> Politics is, is yeah. wonderful for speculation. <laughs> Simeon, if it weren't for speculation, some days, what the hell would I talk about? Mentioned the uh, transit dispute there because, yes, it is busier on the roads this morning. It is a 48-hour transit strike, but there's no positive developments to report in terms of getting things settled. Uh, so, Vaughn, what are we hearing from the politicians on this? Well, uh, opposition leader Kevin Falcon, I think, has picked an issue that will have some currency with uh, people who are wrestling with surge pricing or trying to get to school or university or work, uh, trying to get to medical appointments. He says that the government shouldn't be sitting on its hands in this and, you know, by all means, encourage people to get back to the table. But he says the New Democrats let the two previous transit disputes, the one in Sea the Sky, the one in Fraser Valley, go on for months. Uh, people can't stand it here. What we need is essential service designations, minimal service levels so that students can get to university, so that uh, people don't everybody trying to get to work doesn't have to take a, a surge pricing uh, service and so people can get to medical appointments. So, you know, the government comes back and says, uh, well, you know what the NDP line is on this. It's pretty consistent. Um, the best deals are done at the table and the NDP doesn't believe in intervening and imposing settlements. Um, Labor Minister Harry Baines did point out that if the two sides wanted, they could go to the Labour Board and seek an essential service designation anyway, and the employers could do that, <clears throat> and they might do that. You've said it, Simi, it's a 48-hour dispute right now, but no end in sight. If this thing goes on for any length of time, I wouldn't be surprised to see this thing end up in front of the Labour Board. In the meantime, I think Kevin Falcon has said something that will be viewed sympathetically by a lot of the people who depend on transit. That is certainly the case. It depends if they can handle two days. And if that's it, then okay. But they're talking escalation. So we will, of course, have those updates today. Uh, But what else we're going to talk about this morning is this international student cap announced, well, just about this time yesterday. Still trying to figure out, Vaughn, the impact of this on individual provinces. Well, I think the impact on British Columbia is going to be huge. Uh, first of all, British Columbia has had an enormous surge in international students, more than doubled. Uh, in fact, I think the last, just the last quarter of last year, there was a huge surge. Uh, I was astonished at one number. Uh, there are 218 private colleges, in most of them in Metro Vancouver, that are offering diplomas to international students. It's no wonder there's a suspicion that some of them are degree mills. So the BC government's line was, we don't want you to cap things because they knew BC would take a disproportionate number under the cap, and it will. Uh, We don't want to uh, pick on everybody as bad actors when we think it's a small number. And we're working on our own plan to deal with this. And Selena Robinson, the Minister for Advanced Education, Post-Secondary Education, said yesterday that BC actually shared the details of its plan with Ottawa in advance in hopes of getting the feds to back off. It didn't work. Uh, BC has its own plan. Robinson says they'll be rolling it out in the next few weeks. It won't be uh, as clumsy and blunt as what Ottawa did. At least that's the line from the BC government. 
Okay, so waiting on more details for that. It sounds like, so then, a bit of a crackdown is coming. Yeah, a crackdown is coming, but BC is, the BC line is, uh, Ottawa just slammed the overall numbers, and then they prorated it so the provinces that are taking the most international students get the biggest cut, and that's us and Ontario. Uh, Robinson says what BC is going to do is to try to deal just with the bad actors suspected in the private diploma mills, not impact Simon Fraser University, University of Victoria, UBC, which make an awful lot of money off international students, but also offer legitimate internationally recognized degrees. Uh, What BC government is concerned with is you know, an unnamed diploma mill that offers a degree, a a diploma in, quote, business, unquote, that you then turn around, you get that, you pay for that a lot, but that gives you a foot in the door to seek permanent residency status. And that is the suspected racket here. People aren't coming here for the degree or the diploma They're coming here to get their foot in the door and become an immigrant to Canada. And they don't mind paying a lot for that foot in the door. So save essentially the cap space allowed by the federal government for these bigger legitimate institutions. Yes. Now she says they won't be hit as hard. Well, I guess, you know, we're going to have to wait and see. But the BC plan is going to have to be reworked because they now know what their numbers are going to be over the next two years, and they're going to have to deal with a surge and make sure, as they say, that the, the, the penalties, the limits, are imposed on the most suspect players in the game. That's the government's goal, but whether they can do that as surgically as they make out, I would guess, Simi, there's a fair amount of anxiety at Simon Fraser and UBC and elsewhere because those institutions make a lot of money off international students. They, in return, they give them legitimate degrees. But if the cash flow, uh, you know, those institutions are going to have to look at <clears throat> some spending cuts, probably, if they're not getting that kind of money anymore. Which is interesting because there are some big universities, particularly in Ontario, that are already on shaky ground, like Queen's University, uh, that this is going to really hurt them even further. Yeah, I haven't seen any indications yet of any BC institutions being in that kind of predicament, but you're right. And and it's kind of shocking. Queen's must be one of our oldest universities. Yeah. It's been there forever. Um, My daughter went there, actually. And uh, yeah, as did as did my wife. So it's uh, that's a big hit uh, that Queens is saying financially it's to the wall. Okay, so when might we get some details on this? Next few weeks, according to Robinson, I don't know if they're waiting for the budget, which is the end of February. Hmm. Probably not. My guess is you'd announce it beforehand because the budget tends to suck up an awful lot of the news items within it because you focus on the big numbers in the budget, not uh, something like this. So I think they'll be scrambling to get it out before that. As I say, I think they're probably right now sitting down digesting what the federal cap actually means for BC. Remember, it's 35% across the board. But the minister said yesterday it will be prorated in the interest of fairness, to the province that have the biggest problems. So that means BC is, the way I read that, Simi, we're going to take a bigger hit than 35%. 
Um, you know, Nova Scotia, BC, and Ontario are the major targets, and my guess is we're going to take a bigger hit than 35%. Oh, boy. Okay. Wait and see what happens. Vaughn, thank you. Bye-bye. This is Mornings with Simi. Such an intriguing idea, right? Like, we know that landlords have their issues with tenants. We know that tenants have a lot of issues with landlords. How do you how do you protect both of them almost sometimes from each other? Well, our Scott Chance is with us now to talk about this idea, which I guess would certainly help tenants get a better idea of who they're renting from. Yeah, absolutely. It's a, a tenant registry, like a landlord registry, and this exists in Ontario right now, but it's definitely coming. Like, this is going to be a Canada-wide thing in no time, I'm sure of it. It's a landlord registry called Open Room, where essentially landlords can go there and register tenants who have been bad. So, like, we've all heard about people who maybe have suites in their places and don't rent them because they don't want to have a bad tenant come and stay, and then they right. can't get evicted, and so what would happen to the housing market if all of these if these landlords felt comfortable renting because they knew they had a bit more power. Well, this website is designed to do that, to give you a heads up if you have potential bad tenants looking into your place. So I spoke with Varun Sriskanda. He's a part of the board of directors for SOLO. That stands for Small Ownership Landlords of Ontario. He's very involved with Open Room. And I asked him basically to tell me about it, why God started the idea behind it, and just give us some explanation as to where this is going to go. Yeah, so if a landlord uh, has uh, an order against a tenant, let's say an order for eviction or an order that you owe me money, uh, not a good order. Obviously, we won't put posted good orders there. It's the bad orders. The bad orders get posted onto openroom.ca, and uh, landlords can come and search for a tenant's name on that database. Okay. And they can pull up the tenant's name and read that order. What do you mean when you say order? So this is, is that like a complaint, or is this, it has to be like a legal thing? Yeah, yeah. So th- there is a process for this. You cannot simply go and post the name of a tenant who you don't like. Anything that you say and, and anything that's posted to that site needs to be uh, backed up with an order from the landlord and tenant board. So every single application, every single name you see there on that website is backed up with an order. And you can read that order in full. Okay. So this means that the landlord tenant board has said that this person is ordered evicted for these reasons. So it feels like it's it has a degree of um, seriousness and also credibility to it, and it's not just like, oh, they were a jerk, or oh, they left the place messy, or, you know, this is serious. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I would not support a site that allowed the landlord to just come in and trash a tenant's name without backing it up. So what's been going on between renters and the renter situation that has led to the need for a website like this? So if you uh, get into a situation where your tenant's not paying rent or your tenant's being extremely problematic with their behavior, it could take you up to one year to evict your tenant. So currently it takes about five to six months to get, an, uh, to get a hearing date at the board. Once you get a hearing date, it takes about one to two months to get your written decision. After you get your written decision, another one to two months to schedule a sheriff eviction. By the time it's all done, it's been one year. Now, I want to say most of the renters are phenomenal. They all pay their rent on time. They behave themselves. They don't want anything to disrupt their housing, and that's fair. But unfortunately, there are some bad apples that have completely ruined it. So Open Room has become the safest way and and one of the greatest ways to quickly eliminate a person and not show them a unit or to not even engage in them further. 
So what has the reaction been like from the community and from renters and, and tenants and landlords to this website? Tenants are not happy. They're not happy, but, but I, I, I don't blame them because they're finally being held accountable, right? For the longest time, if you didn't pay rent, there were no repercussions either than being evicted. Your name wasn't published anywhere. Your credit score wasn't even impacted. You know, you stop paying your mortgage or stop paying your MasterCard and look what happens to your credit score. But you stop paying your rent and there is no impact to your credit score. There is no repercussions. There's no database. There's no judgmental orders uploaded anywhere. That has all changed now, right? So tenants are catching up and realizing that, oh, no, if I don't pay the rent, it's going to be uploaded to this website and everybody's going to see. So they're not happy by it. They are not happy. Yeah, and that makes sense. I think there's an issue here, especially in BC, where we feel like um, a lot of, uh, you know, we, we all know we're in this housing crisis, but a lot of potential landlords don't want to rent their place. Like maybe they have an, a suite in their house or a basement suite, and those places sit empty because of fear that they might get one of these bad tenants and don't want to have to go yeah. through that. And it's almost like if there were some protection for landlords, maybe they would feel more comfortable renting knowing that they could uh, potentially evict people easier, get them out, you know, that there were consequences for not paying or being a bad tenant. Yeah, absolutely. If it was easier to evict a tenant, I think more landlords would take a chance, right? But at the moment, if it's going to take one year to evict someone, no, we we need to take every reasonable step possible to make sure we are getting a good renter. So, Varun, this exists in Ontario and is fairly recent, but what's the response been like nationally? Have other provinces reached out? Do you feel like this is going to grow um, across the country or potentially even globally? What, what What's next for Open Room? I believe that what's next for Open Room is it's going to go Canada-wide. Yeah. There is so much demand from B.C. landlords, Alberta landlords. I have landlords in Newfoundland and Alberta who call me constantly asking, hey, uh, how do I upload a decision from Alberta into Open Room? And at the moment, we're not taking it, but, you know, it, it's coming. Uh, first thing is I, I think we need to, Open Room needs to expand to all provinces in Canada. It's, 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 it's created a wonderful tool that everyone is looking to look to recreate in their own city. That's Varun Sriskanda. He's with Open Room and Solo, the small ownership uh, landlord's uh, operation office in Ontario. And um, I think this is a great idea, Simi. I'm with it. I think that there is, we need more transparency in rental ten- tenancy landlord agreements um, so that there's some protection for both sides. We've been so focused on protecting renters that now landlords are afraid to even put their places up on the market. I am intrigued by this. I, I guess it would depend on, I, I like the emphasis that he put on it. No, no, this has to be documented. Yes. You can't just it's you know go on there and say something about somebody. Yeah, it's, it's not a Facebook page. It's This is official stuff here, and this is all stuff that would be public information right. anyway, and they're just com- compiling it into one space and saying, this is where you can go to find out. Okay, interesting. We'll have to see how people feel about that. Scott, thank you. You got it. Uh, let us know what you think. Is that something that, if you're a landlord here or you know you have a, something that you rent out, would this be helpful? And if you're a tenant, do you think, oh, I don't know how I feel about this? Let us know. Simi at CKNW.com. Do we need a tenant registry, a bad tenant registry in this province? This is Mornings with Simi. Picture this. You're sitting down waiting for your meal. Your mouth waters. 
You pick up your knife and fork and get ready to dig into a delicious meal of crickets. Huh? It is a strange idea, right? But what if I told you it is the future of food? I caught up with Dr. Yasmin Akhtar, sessional lecturer at UBC's Faculty of Land and Food Systems, who shared her inspiration behind diving into the world of insect consumption. When I thought about global warming, and when I thought about that in 2050, the world population will be like about 10 billions, and people may not have enough food for all. So then I thought about uh, what can be the other meat for the future generation. Then insects came to my mind, and then I started looking at the benefits of the insects. So insects contain like um, they're high in proteins. They contain like uh, good minerals uh, <clears throat> such as uh, magnesium, manganese, iron, and uh, and they also contain vitamins such as vitamin B12, vitamin B2, mm-hmm. and uh, vitamin A. And uh, they also contain fiber. And uh, and I mean. Uh, I mean, they they are very high in proteins compared to uh, compared to some of the conventional meat sources, especially some of the grasshoppers in Mexico. Their their protein content content is much higher than the beef. Environmental sustainability is a significant aspect of promoting insect consumption. So, is rearing insects more ethical compared to other farm animals? And what specific measures make insect farming more sustainable? Dr. Akhtar had some compelling insights into how these small creatures could save the whole planet. Insects release less greenhouse gases, right? And insects, they require like very little land for rearing. And uh, in terms of water, insects don't don't drink water, you know, the amount of water they get, they can get it from their food, you know. And insects require very little space, but for an animal, you know, you need a lot of space in order to rear an animal. Their reproduction rate is much higher compared to an animal, meat-producing animal, and um, and their life cycle is also very short. Development cycle is also very, very short, you know. Although insects sound like the ethical choice, It is not all sunshine and rainbows. Insects live in many different environments, including soil, and can be infested with bacteria and other viruses. So, of course, there are risks associated with consuming insects. As you know, insects are found everywhere, right? They're found in the soil, they're found on the trees, and uh, they can be exposed to heavy metals that are present in the soil. They can be exposed to insecticides that are used to to kill the pest and they can be contaminated with that they can be exposed to the microorganisms like bacteria fungi and uh, and viruses but one important thing that people should watch out is that uh, people who are allergic to seafood like shellfish they are also they can also be allergic to the insects Interesting. because both of them they share like common allergens protein allergens right we should avoid those insects that contain toxic compounds like many butterflies and larvae. But one thing people should look for is that that those insects that contain toxic compounds, they they are brightly colored and they have like uh, red and black spots on them, you know. And here's the part you've been waiting for. The taste test. Yes, I tried a barbecued cricket. And let me tell you, 
it was an experience. So what do we have here? Uh, okay. So we have here crickets and uh, I have obtained them from Entomo Farms as you can see mm. here. These are whole crickets and those are mealworms. Meal so mealworms, you know, so they are like you can see, uh, they are also, you know, dried mealworms and uh, you can eat them as a snack, you know. As a snack? So, cool. Yes. <laughs> All right, you can try this. What does it taste like? Uh, well, it has a nutty flavor, flavor uh, like nuts. Nuts? Yes. Okay. Hmm. What does it taste like? It's it's giving me the, the texture of chestnuts. Oh, yes, you're right. A, a little bit powdery. Yes. Um, also, it's like crunchy from the outside powdery from the inside, inside okay, yeah. it does not have a weird taste it that has, I need to be yes, scared yes, of. Yes. Interesting. I did not expect that taste. It yes. has a shell though. Yes, it does. I can, yeah, I can yes. feel. Because mm. the thing is that the, their exoskeleton, their outer covering is made up of chitin. And chitin is a, is a fiber, you know, so it is like a prebiotic fiber, you know. If you're new to the idea, there are numerous creative ways to sneak bugs into your meals. Like you can add insect powder or flour into your baking, smoothies, or drinks. Would I give it another shot? Hmm. I'm not entirely sold yet. The cricket I sampled was alright taste-wise, but the texture did not quite sit right with me. So, if cows and chickens ever disappeared from the universe? Chickpeas would become my go-to for protein instead. For the health series, I'm Leila Khader. This is Mornings with Simi. Immigration Minister Mark Miller has announced a cap on international students that will drastically reduce the number that come to Canada for the next two years. Now, this will undoubtedly be a challenge for some post-secondary institutions that do rely heavily on international student fees for funding. How will they make up that shortfall? Well, in B.C., post-secondary education minister Selena Robinson has already said there will not be a fee increase to domestic students, but mainly this is a cap, she says, that will target Bad actors, that's what she called them, in the post-secondary system. But what does all that mean? Well, details are still waiting to come, and post-secondary institutions are waiting to find out what it all means to them. Joining us now to talk more about this is Ruben Onyango, who's a Thompson Rivers University World Associate Director of International Student Services. Ruben, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me on the show. Anna. What does this mean for Thompson Rivers University? I think we are, um, like... Most institutions in Canada, it's it's too early for us to know what the impacts will be as a result of this announcement. Um, we'll begin to work to understand the potential effects, including financially, but I think we need to learn more from the provincial government on how they intend to allocate visas before we're able to figure out what the impacts um, on our enrollment will be. Okay, how important are international students to Thompson Rivers? Um, I think... International students um, bring a lot of, uh, you know, diversity to the campus, into the city. And, uh, you know, I think we shouldn't shy away from saying that, you know, um, financially as well. They, um, you know, universities rely on international students. So, um, yeah, there's, there's multiple 
benefits to having international students on our campus and in our community as well. Has the number, though, at TRU, has that grown over the years? Have there been more international students coming? Yeah, over the years, um, our numbers have uh, have increased, um, no doubt. And, uh, you know, I think everyone is curious to see how the, the upcoming changes will, will impact um, enrollment. So, Ruben, in your line of work, working with international students, have you seen some of the challenges they face in, in coming here and, and navigating, you know, the financial challenges that so many of them have been facing? Uh, yes, we have. Um, you know, I think especially over the past few years, um, the cost of housing has gone up um, in Kamloops as well. And, uh, you know, TRU has been working very diligently to provide more housing and more affordable housing at that. Um, and, you know, I think that work just continues. But, you know, housing is one I can think of. Um, but, you know, we have um, emergency funding supports available to students. Um, who, you know, have a, a, an unforeseen immediate need. So, uh, you know, yes, the, the impacts are there, but we're doing everything that we can to make sure that once we recruit students to come to Canada, we support them all the way through to graduation. So how does TRU then feel about this cap? Is this something that you think, okay, maybe it was necessary elsewhere, or do you, does TRU feel the system was working? Um, I think the you know at the end of the day, you know the government does what it needs to do, and I think in this case, um, you know many feel that it's uh, it, it's it's a change that's needed. I think the the big thing we'll be trying to really understand how this will impact our enrollment going forward. But you know I think right now we have the big picture which we are expecting. We just we need the details. Once we have that, we'll be able to work through. Um, whatever um, is put before us. Okay. Has there been any indication from the provincial government when you might get those details? Um, we don't have an indication as of right now, but, you know, I think the provincial government has set a deadline of March 31st, so we're expecting that we will hear from the provincial government uh, fairly soon so that by March 31st we're ready to go. Is there interest in coming to TRU from all over the world? Yeah, I mean, we've been doing this for 40 years, uh, and uh, TRU's brand is strong and respected around the world, and that's reflected in the number of international students who continue to seek an education here. So is there something different that TRU does? Like, do you provide more support? Because obviously, Ruben, some of the concern here is that some colleges and universities bring students here and then don't provide them with enough support. Yeah. That's true enough, but uh, at TRU, we have a very large and diverse international student services team um, to provide non-academic support. Um, you know, we help with on-campus housing, and we have a pretty big uh, homestay network in Kamloops. So, um, you know, mental health supports are there in addition to what the government is offering. So our wraparound supports are um, pretty solid, and, you know, we're confident that even under the you know, the trusted institution framework that will be rolled out later this year, um, TRU will come out shining. So looking forward to what's ahead. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time.
That is Ruben Onyango. That is the Thompson River University World's Associate Director of International Student Services, talking about the impact of this international student cap on an institution like Thompson Rivers. They're still waiting. They know they have a lot of international students, and they really need to find out how this is going to impact them. We'll see. We're waiting to hear more from post-secondary education minister uh, Selena Robinson on that. This is Mornings with Simi. Tend to think of gangs involved in the drug trade at war, right? Fighting with each other for territory, fighting with each other for money, causing shootings, killing people, leaving cars to burn in their wake. All of that we have heard about here in Metro Vancouver for years now as a consequence of the gang war. And yet, at a much higher level, there is cooperation among some of these same gangs. That's just one of the surprising finds from a deep investigation done by crime reporter for the Vancouver Sun, Kim Bolin, who joins us now to talk about this. Kim, thanks so much for being here. Thanks very much for having me. First off, tell me about this project that you conducted. Well, I was fortunate enough to get a grant from the Lieutenant Governor. It's a special grant they have for journalists. I hope my colleagues apply for it because it was a great opportunity. And it covered some of the travel that I really wanted to do to look at some of the international links of BC gangs. I mean, we know it, you know, we see people getting killed or arrested overseas, so we know they're there, right? But when you're sitting in Vancouver doing your best to research stories, it's pretty hard to look at you know, the international connection. So that was my goal, uh, especially after we had six tons of methamphetamine seized uh, at the port in Tuasen, uh, uh, you know, earlier last year, right? Like six tons, all destined for Australia. There was a whole bunch more destined for New Zealand. And I'm like, well, who's behind this? Like, this is major, right? And yet all we get is sort of the news release view of, uh, oh, wow, look, we see this isn't this great news, and I always right. want to know more, right? So this gave me the opportunity to find out more. So how did you do that, though? Like, where do you even start? Well, that was hard, and it was a new challenge for me almost 40 years into my job, right? I'm still trying to figure things out some days. Uh, so I, I started just by, you know, researching, finding news articles, everything I could uh, down in Australia about Canadians who had uh, been caught there. I reached out to contacts. You know, fortunately, there was someone with the Australian Federal Police at the news conference that CBSA had uh, in um, in Tawasin last June. So, you know, I reached out to him. I got his business card and just started trying to, you know, get people to agree to talk to me. I also went to the United Nations Office on Drugs and Crime, which is a new resource for me, and they were fantastic. They have people kind of looking at transnational organized crime all over the world. So I was able to, you know, often check in with their representative in countries that I was visiting. So, you know, it was sometimes a bit scrambly, especially to find out, to find people who were directly impacted, you know, by, by essentially, you know, Canadians shipping drugs uh, into communities and, you know, people using those substances and sometimes having, right. you know, serious troubles with those substances, just like here. What did you find, though, about Vancouver's role? What did you discover about Vancouver's role in this kind of worldwide drug trade? Well, first of all, you know, you always want to look at, oh, well, these three people are guilty. They're behind it. This group is is directly behind it. But in fact, you know, when you look at the bigger picture, you see that it's not just one organization, whether it's the Hells Angels or the Comancheros biker gang in Australia 
or uh, triads or cartels from Mexico. They all work together. They communicate using encrypted devices. Uh, you know, if, if there's going to be two tons, you know, of a drug ship somewhere, it's not one party that's going to be doing it or receiving it. It's going to be essentially like a group of entrepreneurs. Oh, does anyone want in on this? You know, I, I'm going to need this much up front. Right. So they work together to make sure that these major shipments that are so lucrative, like if you look at methamphetamine, which is uh, the main uh, drug causing problems and being used in Australia and New Zealand, and now I found out in some South Pacific countries that are much poorer and really, really struggling with this problem, uh, you know, you know, they here you can buy that methamphetamine if it's made in Mexico for $3,500 a kilogram. Down there, you can sell it for up to $200,000 Australian, which is just a little bit less than Canadian, right? So huge markup. So so many people are willing to take the risk, right? And there's also a problem uh, with, you know, smaller uh, organizations who do what is called shotgunning, and they will just send like kilo by kilo via uh, the mail or air freight, uh, you know, packages of methamphetamine. Even that, if you send 100 packages, that's 100 kilos, right? So both things are problem problems down there, and both things deeply involve Canadian organized crime. And, and reading through the first part, what really struck me was something you just mentioned there, and that is the cooperation at the high levels of, of these gangs that are, are fighting here, you know, on the streets of Metro Vancouver, but at a higher level above these guys, they're actually working together. Yeah, it is really shocking because you see so many young guys getting caught up in this. Well, I'm on this team. I'm going to go get that guy from that team. And they're either being killed, seriously injured, or they're, you know, going to jail for the rest of their lives, Yeah, you know, for murder, right? And, you know, deservedly, I'm not saying that, but they are often being used and they're being recruited at very young ages. Uh, and they, they think that there's loyalty and that they're doing uh, their bidding for higher-ups in the organization, when in reality, uh, those higher-ups are all chatting away with uh, people from the other organization that they're going after. So, you know, I really would love that message to get out to younger uh, people that are involved. It's just so not worth it, and you're being used. Did you find that, like, kind of one thread led to another, led to another, that once you kind of got going, asking questions, traveling, it just, something else came along? Well, yes. Uh, I, to some degree, that is true, right? I mean, I learned so much, without a doubt. I, you know, to just sort of look at how these groups operate at the international level, you know, it was eye-opening for me. It also, you know, raises all kinds of questions, like, how do you tackle that? Like, I understand that it's challenging for police in Canada to be, you know, involved in international investigations. There certainly is a lot of cooperation between agencies, uh, including those in Canada with other agencies worldwide. Uh, but there are some limits to what Canadians or uh, police are able to do. And I am writing about that later in the series, right? So, you know, it was uh, really, really eye-opening. But I did also go down there with all kinds of, you know, files and background and information that I had, you know, saved, uh, collected, dug out over the years. And that helped a lot, too. So I could ask about specific organizations, uh, specific groups that I had researched. And, you know, the story today about... Uh, someone who grew up in Abbotsford, uh, who is now allegedly the right-hand man of, you know, one of the biggest, uh, allegedly still hasn't been convicted, but uh, drug traffickers in the world. So, 
That's um, great. I was just reading that. I was reading through it this morning. I read the other piece since today's day two. Um, and you just think, how, how? How does that happen? Somebody who grew up in Abbotsford to come on the front lines of a worldwide drug war like that. Well, and so that's where, you know, you ask and I, you know, could something have been done earlier? Uh, he has faced charges in so many countries. He always seems to get off. Um, and now he is involved at this at the highest levels. Right. So uh, currently not facing any charges. Important to point that out. Uh, but, you know, I've got intelligence reports. I met with uh, people who have been tracking him in law enforcement. And uh, without a doubt, they say, you know, he's there at the highest levels. Okay, so how many parts to this are there? There's a lot of detail in this work, Kim. How long will it go on for? It's a five-part series, and then some of the days. Today, there's no sidebar, but there's often a secondary story. Like yesterday, there was, you know, the the plight of a woman who started an anti-ice group uh, after uh, being a a major methamphetamine user and having all kinds of problems related to that. Uh, So... Uh, five days, but I do have some leftover material, so I will no doubt write a few more stories uh, that won't be packaged as part of this, but they'll be in the Vancouver Sun and online. So I'm hoping people will read. Another thing is because uh, we got this support from the Lieutenant Governor's Journalism Fellowship, there is no paywall on any of these stories. So, you know, if people think they won't be able to click and read them, that's not true. You will be able to to do that and going forward as well if you don't have time to read them now because they are pretty lengthy stories. Oh, there's so much good work in there. Kim, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Anytime. That's Kim Boland, crime reporter for the Vancouver Sun. Check out this very special series that she has done on the international drug trade and the links to BC. As she points out, there's no paywall on these stories. You can go to VancouverSun.com and read them all. Today is day two. Lots of detailed reporting in there for the first time ever, really, where you learn about the links between our local communities here, place like Abbotsford, to the highest, highest echelons of the international drug trade. So check that out. This is Mornings with Simi. I know it's a messy one out there in traffic this morning, of course, exacerbated by the fact that we are in day two of this transit strike. It is supposed to be a 48-hour job action, meaning that we would have one more day before things go back to normal until we await the next level of job action. So that's where we're at right now. There will be, I'm sure, an update at some point today. Find out if these two sides are going to sit down and get this done or it's going to continue to be this way for commuters out there. We will let you know, of course, and we'll update you on the traffic situation in a few minutes. Right now, though, we're going to talk about the fact that we are notoriously hard on ourselves, right? I mean, in fact, that voice in your head is probably the most ruthless voice that you hear. Like, you would never say the things in your head that you say to yourself to other people, would you? Well, that's the interesting premise behind a film, actually, from our next guest. It's a filmmaker based in Vancouver, Dylan Miranda, who joins us now. Dylan, thanks for being here. Oh, thanks so much for having me. How did you get started on this idea? Well, so I was originally approached by um, what's actually an advertising agency called Mischief out of New York, and I had done some PSA work with them before. Um, and one of the founders there is a longtime collaborator with um, Monica Lewinsky and making films around messages and causes that she gets behind. And so uh, two creatives there named Dana and Tanner were working with her on an idea um, around this uh, self-bullying and they wanted to do an addendum to the, the golden rule of, you know, treat others the way you want to be treated. Usually that's the rule we associate with bullying and, uh, change that to, um, you know, treat ourselves the way we treat others. Uh, and so they approached me with this idea and we created this, 
film around it, the film uh, that you saw and that um, others can see uh, now that it's out? So it's an idea that they can take things on its head, right? Did that appeal to you? Like when you first heard that, did it resonate with you when you thought, yeah, actually treat myself the way we treat other people? Yes. Yeah, no, I had a very, you know, close personal connection and um, my inner voice is something that, you know, requires continuous work as, as does all of us. And, um, you know, I think it was a really unique concept in the way that we built it. You know, we wanted to sort of um, fool people into thinking that they were potentially watching, you know, someone bully someone else when in fact um, it acts as a bit of a bait and switch to, to make the film more engaging and that um, we realized that these things that this person on screen is reading to another person is is actually things that they've said about themselves. And, you know, it sounds so harsh when it's coming out of their mouth to someone else. Um, and the hope was that when we realized that, you know, these people are, are actually speaking about themselves, these are the things that they say to themselves every day, um, that it would make people stop and think about, you know, the things that we sometimes allow ourselves to to say to us in that, you know, mean inner voice, that harshest critic, right? So, so when, you were, when that, you were talking to people about this, I know you went out on the street to talk to people about this. Are they willing to admit that? You know, it was it was it was surprising. I think we, we went through a bit of a casting process and, and we wanted to keep the experiment um, a little under wraps, but obviously, you know, give people enough information that they would feel like comfortable being on camera. Um, and so, you know, I think when you're presented with the task of writing a letter to yourself in the, in your, the voice of your harshest critic, which is what we approach people to do, um, it was surprising how sometimes that can just pour out of you. You know, we all did the exercise ourselves to see, uh, you know, if it would be something easy to do. And, it, it, it shockingly was, it disappointingly was. Um, and, you know, all of our participants did that uh, before knowing that they were going to say it uh, to a loved one. Um, but then when they, you know, were told that very close to the moment where they went on camera, um, you know, it was even more surprising how many people were willing to sort of move forward with it and, you know, admit that to themselves in that moment to a loved one. Were you surprised by some of the results that you got? Like people were probably pretty harsh here, right? Oh yeah. And it was, you know, so, so moving. I was so moved. You know, I think someone, when they saw the film, they asked me how I wasn't just like a a mess in the room all day with these people. And and true truth is I was, you know, all the people we found were so amazing. It's such unique stories. Um, and yeah, to hear, you know, them pour their hearts out on camera like that. And in these, in this very real moment, you know, it's not, it's not a, it's a script in the sense that they wrote it themselves, but you know, those moments that you're seeing on screen with their loved ones, and that's actually happening right there in front of us. So it was incredibly moving. Yeah. Being there and seeing it. What do you hope that people get out of it from watching that process? I think it's just, being aware of, you know, that inner voice of ourselves that uh, can be a bully. I I think, you know, one of the things that draw me to it was my own struggles with this as a young person. Um, You know, nearly 80% of young people are mean to themselves. Um, You know, negative self-talk is linked to the number two cause of death in young people, which is suicide. And so, you know, we wanted to create something that raised awareness about this. And we had a bunch of partnership um, charities uh, that were involved uh, with the film. And, and so part of it was creating a website, StandUpToYourself.com, which sort of directs people to those charities and the missions that they have, uh, which usually pertain to 
bullying or in this case, self-bullying. Okay. And where can people see this? Uh, StandUpToYourself.com. That's the best place to see the film and, and read a little bit more about the campaign. Okay. And so what kind of reaction have you gotten to this, Dylan? It's, it's been great. I mean, I think people who have seen it, uh, you know, they think it's really powerful. And, you know, the work, I can only take so much credit as a, as a director. You know, the, the, the moments on screen speak for themselves. And Monica has been so amazing in uh, championing this film. And so she's gone on to, you know, show the film at USA Today. It's been on Cosmopolitan. She's just a really a champion for this cause and a champion for this, this little film that, you know, seems to be making an impact on a lot of people. It can be hard to watch, though, right? Because this is it's harsh words sometimes. <laughs> it is. It's it's it really, you know, and, and that's the hope. You know, there was some stuff that we felt like we couldn't put in or things that were too personal. And, um, you know, it was a really delicate balance on the day. We had mental health professionals there um, to help with shooting and to help people after, you know, going through this process. Obviously, it was all a, you know, consenting process, but it's very difficult. And I I think, you know, pushing through um, how difficult it is, hopefully puts us in a place where we can have a better discussion about that. Um, you know, it's, that's the problem with negative self-talk. It's so internal. It's so difficult, a thing for us to talk about with other people. Um, but what's even more interesting is you and I are having a conversation about it. I think anyone who does talk about it can admit that we are difficult on ourselves. We need to spare ourselves, you know, more kindness, the same kindness that we generally show to others in our day-to-day lives. That's very, very true. Okay. So what is this film called? And once again, where can people find it? It's called Stand Up To Yourself, and you can find it at StandUpToYourself.com. All right, we'll check it out. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. That's Dylan Miranda, a filmmaker based in Vancouver, talking about the film that he's worked on, Stand Up For Yourself. It's true. We are harsh, right? That inner voice that you have that is so hard on yourself and you look yourself in the mirror or things that you do, uh, this really exposes that for the first time, right? So I don't think anybody's asked people to take on this kind of exercise before.